Welcome to So How Do You, the podcast that's your little black book for interiors. I'm your host, Laura Jackson, and I'm going to be speaking to two guests in every episode who will give you both design inspiration and practical know-how. Now, this week is a particularly poignant topic for me because I'm currently still in the middle of doing up my living room, and I feel like it's a room that has limitless options, which means decision-making is very hard. But hopefully by the end of this episode, we'll be able to approach our living rooms like the professionals do. Well, here's hoping. To help me get to the bottom of all of my questions, I'm going to be chatting to interior designer Sophie Ashby to find out how we can choose a timeless style and what the proper way to lay out a living room is. Then you're going to hear me talking to Natasha Landers, asking her about her most creative, unique and repurposed living space that she shares on her Instagram page, at Until Lemons Are Sweet. Before we get into the podcast this week, I wanted to tell you about my wonderful sponsor, Wix, who you will hear more about over the series. I feel like they are the perfect fit, offering ideas and advice for making improvements to your home from helping to save energy, something I know we are all thinking about, to making small changes that make a big difference. Did you know that 25% of your home's heat is lost through a poorly insulated roof? Or that by switching to LED bulbs, you can save more money on your energy bills and help the planet at the same time. Now, I know that some of these jobs vary in ability and can sound scary, but with Wix, they guide you every step of the way. So rather than breaking the bank on a full refurb, focus on the smaller, more manageable jobs like repainting your skirting boards for that bold statement rather than painting an entire room. Paint is the ideal place to start for a quick and easy transformation. Refreshing those tired, scuffed walls will reinvigorate your home while adding colour and bring a new level of style. Or maybe if you're feeling a bit adventurous, then you could towel your fireplace for a really cost-effective way to transform a room and create a focal point. Now, if that's sounding like too much, start small, build up your skills. You can really achieve great results with small tweaks, such as just changing your door handles. You don't have to swap out the whole kitchen sink, but those bathroom taps might be in need of replacing. Follow along as we cover this and so much more in this series. For more information on how to get started, visit wix.co.uk. Okay, so let's start with Sophie. Sophie Ashby is a very well-respected interior designer and the founder of design studio, Studio Ashby. I have been a huge fan of Sophie's for such a long time, following her every move on Instagram. And I just love the way that she pulls together a living room. It's absolutely impeccable. And I really want to dig into how she approaches the layout. I'm really looking forward to finding out how she turns a blank canvas into a timeless, elegant space so effortlessly. Sophie, I'm so excited to be speaking to you. I mean, you've been a huge living room inspiration for me and um, lucky that I am redoing my living room at the moment. So I've got lots of questions personally that I want to ask you that I'm sure that the listeners will be interested um, in too. I'd love to start off by asking you about how you approach decorating a living room when you've got a brief and where you found your inspiration. Well, Aside from the kitchen, it is usually the room that, um, you know, a family spend the most amount of time in. So it's really important and it's usually all focused and pointing towards one thing, which is a TV or a fireplace. So I think a lot of the time it's just 
assessing what's the like loveliest aspect and view of the room, what's the natural kind of focal point of the room, and how to make the most out of it furniture layout-wise. So often in period properties like terraced Victorian houses or Edwardian houses, the door and how you get into it versus the chimney breast versus the TV location and the windows and stuff, it's, it's quite tough to try and get decent seating in there. And the like vague rule of thumb is however many bedrooms there are and people who can sleep in the house, is that's how many decent seats you should try to be providing in the living room. So you kind of usually start off with that knowing like you need to be able to comfortably sit four or six people or more maybe and therefore trying to get the biggest sofa in without it completely ruining the room. So I've got a few basic rules which is like don't walk into the back of a sofa. Most of the time back of sofas are not that beautiful. Um, There are some lovely design sofas that have you know, tried to get around that problem, which is great. Um, you can do things like put a little bookcase or a, or a sofa table or a console table or tuck something behind it and put lamps on it. But generally, I prefer to not walk into a room, walk, like see the back of a sofa. So it's finding a good place for the sofa and then trying to have maybe like a pair of armchairs or a single armchair. I always think stools are really useful, little floating extra seats um, that can move around decent sized coffee table and then to anchor everything dump it all on the rug rather than have the rug be like a mat in front of everything so I always think the bigger the rug the better um, because it just makes the room feel big and it really kind of grounds and zones all your furniture into that one area. What are the most cost-effective ways to hide a television then? Because it's something that we all enjoy we all watch television um, And I'm assuming we all don't want it to be the big television when you walk into the room. Um, You talked about um, hiding it behind artwork and you've got yours on an easel. Are there any other kind of smart, interesting ways that we can hide the telly? Well, yeah, you can do all sorts. We've done, we've tried loads of things. You can have them pop up from like with inside a unit or you could on like an electric um, lift there's a company called Future Automations that make specifically those things in all different shapes and sizes. They can even pop up and then swivel around. Like, it's amazing. But that, again, is quite a big piece of kit and quite a big commitment. Um, we quite often just put them in, like, specially made little cupboards where the doors, like, swing and slot back kind of thing. And then it's on, like, a double-armed bracket so you can essentially pull it out and then push it back in and shut the cupboard doors. I know it seems like a faff and, you know, half of the time we'll, we'll have clients where one half of the, the client thinks that's a great idea and is very keen to hide it and the other one's thinking, yeah, we're going to have to open the cupboard and pull the bracket out and are we ever going to push it back in and shut the doors? So it's just personal choice. I mean, if it was me, I would do that because it would upset me so much to have, like, a cupboard open with a TV on a bracket dangling out all the time. Um, <laughs> or the one that gets me is the television that now lights up as a fake fire. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I'm thinking, as you said about the artwork, I'm like, the television is definitely not a fire. Why, Why are we lighting the television? I know. I think that and then... I know that so many people end up just kind of having to do this, but the very worst case scenario for me is having to put it above a fireplace. For you, what is the best thing to put above a fireplace? Is it a piece of art or a mirror or leaving it blank? I always feel like it is an artwork. 
I think a mirror works really well and makes the room feel bigger. But if you think about that chimney breast wall, quite often you've got like three pieces of wall. You've got the wall above the chimney breast or rather on the chimney above the fireplace. And then you've got either side, the two walls flanking that. And so if you think of that as the full elevation, I think it's about balance. So my preference would be to have uh, a very big, strong piece of artwork, try and fill the wall above the fireplace or fill the pair of walls either side the fireplace with art and then put maybe a mirror above the fireplace. You know, art's, art's really important for me and I think it really makes the room. And so if you're thinking of the focal point and your main kind of visual draw, that's where I would put the artwork. If you are designing your own living room, do you think the best way to design it is to draw it all out and lay it all out? And if so, is that just a piece of paper and a pen or should we be using a fancy uh, piece of software? I think it's definitely just a piece of paper and a pen. And you can just take like key dimensions, you know, measure your door width and then you can use that as a sort of measuring stick. But door widths are usually pretty standard. So you can then use that and think I've got three door widths will make a sofa or something like that. And nothing can really beat just getting a measuring tape out and some masking tape and trying to figure it out in the room because you still just can't beat that feeling of standing in the room and thinking, yeah, but actually the sun's coming up from that side or like little intricacies of what what it's really like in the room. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. How How do you go about thinking about your layout is it looking at the light you mentioned about where the door is and the windows are but is it about how you move around that room as well and where the sun is at certain times of the day yeah it's definitely important to consider all of those things but so often you are just quite compromised by things like most of the time doors open into a room and so sometimes just a really amazing space sort of saving thing is to flip the door hinges so that the door might open in the other direction and therefore just tuck nicely against the wall. We spend quite a lot of time flipping door hinges so that doors open in different directions because yeah a door opening into a room just messes things up sometimes from where you might want to put a sofa or an armchair. Uh, So you know again if you're doing like a proper renovation you might want to consider doing a pocket door or um, even just taking the door off if you feel like you don't really need it for fire safety or like smells or all those reasons. Yeah, it is really important to think about kind of the times of day that you're in that room. Like where we live at the moment, our living room is west facing and it's so dark. It's particularly dark in the day. But to try and counteract all of that, I painted it a colour which is a Farron Ball colour called Dimity, which in the cold light of day in my studio looked a bit like the sort of colour I'd never pick because it was very milky and a bit of pink a sort of peachy tone to it but then when I put it on the walls and did samples in there it just really helped to counterbalance all that grey dull light and actually now it just feels like a warm white in there and then I just threw loads of like citrus yellows and oranges and things to just again try and because I hate grey and I hate cool tones I just find them really depressing and soul soul sapping particularly gray I know that's really unpopular and everyone loves gray but I just can't get behind it I just find it the saddest of colors <laughs> what's the best way to decorate then for longevity in your living room you've talked a bit about paint so it's the color scheme really important and furniture and accessories yes definitely I think the color scheme is really important and I love color um as I said we rent where we are and 
it was so important to me to make that room it was already an off-white but I just changed it to a different off-white because it and it just transformed it and but a few more light lighting's really important just like low level glowing lighting I think overhead lighting is always very difficult to create ambience with so yeah floor lamps and table lamps and little what I call glowy blobs like dotted around just to help low level glow in a room and how do you add character if you've got a pretty standard four-walled living room in, say, a new build? Yeah, it, it's actually kind of more freeing. My old flat was in a new build. The flat, once I bought it and moved in, was basically a, a white box. And we work with developers all the time in new build developments. And actually, I, I think what you have, what I always think is um, the interiors have to work harder in that situation. So when you walk into a stunning Georgian room with huge high ceilings and epic windows and old floorboards and a marble fireplace, you know, you could put a few pieces of white cream linen furniture in there and an antique and a light and it would still look elegant and beautiful and, you know, do something to you. It'd be, still be powerfully beautiful. But I don't think the same can be said for a modern white box so in a way you can have more fun I think you can get your interiors to be more playful and try a bit harder and introduce all sorts of things and pattern and color and yeah my my strategy with my flat was um just to put a billion and one things in 54 square meters and that's how you get character (laughs) I just put everything just hundreds of artworks and little knickknacks and stuff that you know basically just too much stuff that didn't fit and I painted our bedroom very bright yellow and had like an aboriginal fabric on the headboard and just kind of went for it really a bit more maximalist but I don't think it's very successful in a white new build box when you try to be restrained and do almost nothing I think it ends up just falling a bit flat and looking a bit boring yeah I mean and do you advise trying to put character in with panels for instance and picture rails or do you just think just embrace the fact that you are in a beautiful clean space Definitely, yeah, just embrace the fact that you're in a beautiful, clean space. I'm not a fan of sort of fudging it and like faking it. So wouldn't usually recommend putting in panelling or things like that unless it was at some point stripped away and it would have been more typical of that period of architecture. I think it's about just, as you say, like embracing it. Basically, it's a contemporary space. And so treat it like that. And it doesn't mean you can't put like a old, French Louis the something chest of drawers in there that will still look great but I probably mix it up with a bit of contemporary stuff as well and overall think of it as a contemporary space and then you can kind of layer in what you want. I mean and you you are in a rental now and you've managed to create this amazing living room how did you start to plan what you wanted to do in this space that essentially wasn't yours and what were your restrictions and how did you get around them so yeah it's quite a long room and it was um the first thing I knew you know we're a family of four and it's quite a big house which is awesome and we're very lucky to have and so we have like my my family come stay a lot so I knew I wanted to be able to seat six people really for like a proper movie night I also knew that with kids and stuff it all needed to be pretty bulletproof 
which I've epically failed on with our yellow velvet sofa, which is trashed and looks like absolute rubbish already. <laughs> that was a major error. Um, oh, no. I do say to the kids, don't go anywhere without wiping your hands. And of course, I've just got fingerprints everywhere. So is it the same as they clawed the sofa? Yeah. Also, what was I thinking? Velvet, the covers are not removable. I don't really know what I was thinking. Um, but no, that was a total disaster. And I'm sure in a few years' time, I'll need to reupholster it. And that time I'll probably go with like a washable, removable linen cover set times two or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, it's just eternally covered in throws. And then you like, with trepidation, remove the throw and think, what the hell's going to be <laughs> underneath here? And it's usually, it's usually a bit bleak. I think it's about just making it work for you and your family who are going to use it 99% of the time. Were you allowed to put nails in the walls and things like that or, or not? Yes, we were. Yeah. Which I mean, if I wasn't allowed to do that, I feel like I may not have been able to move into this house because we have so much art and such a big thing for me that um, although in a few places we've put pictures up with Velcro and actually my Mm. new office is um, grade one listed and I'd have to get I'd have to do a planning application for every hook I want to put on the wall so we have come up with some quite creative solutions for that involving velcro and special weird sort of dangling gravity defying hook and chain systems but yeah i mean we were very lucky because this house is a sort of listed georgian house and it looked epic empty so you know i couldn't mess it up anything i put in here was just going to look good because it's just the bones of it are just so great which is the case with so many houses in london but yeah, it's re- the living room is really just one big curved sofa, which uh, really suits the room and the particular layout I've got here. But I anticipate will be a um, a flop else in the next house. Probably, I think it's going to be hard to fit that size of yellow banana velvet sofa in anywhere else. Makes a note on eBay for an alert of a yellow velvet <laughs> sofa. Exactly, exactly, um, and a very big rug. Is the answer? Yes, as well. absolutely. I get writing those down on my eBay alerts uh, immediately. Um, <laughs> what What do you think should be the investment pieces then, and what can we find a bit more inexpensively? I mean, obviously, a sofa is your your, your big investment pieces you've talked about, but where can we kind of thrift and look for vintage pieces and and on the high street as well? And what should we invest in properly? So I think armchairs are really great pieces to buy vintage. And if you go to flea markets and stuff, you know, I went to Paris recently sourcing for a project and we went to the um, to the flea markets there and we were picking up sort of 18th century, really lovely armchairs for 100 euros, 200 euros. Um, and the carving and the gilt work and stuff like that on those frames you know, to buy that new or to get someone to make that now would be thousands of pounds because it's just so labour intensive. Um, so you can get really amazing shapes. And I, I particularly like armchairs, which are quite like sculptural in form with like a strong arm or an interesting back or a lovely um, angular leg or something like that. Um, you know, there's definitely a place for a big squashy upholstered armchair as well. But I think sometimes... Um, you want something if you're looking at it from the side or from the back you want something a bit more sculptural and less of a lump so yeah I think you can pick up you know I'd say at least half if not more of the contents of my house are vintage or antique definitely more than that actually and that's where you can pick up real bargains 
Where are your favourite places then to go kind of antiquing and vintage shopping for items for the living room? You mentioned the market in Paris. Yeah, the market in Paris is great. Then we've got Kempton here, Ardingly. There's some fantastic vintage furniture dealers like Gordon Watson and Dudley Walters and the peanut vendor that I'm always looking at. Um, AU Bespoke, um, Breton Brut, loads of, there's just a wealth of them. Also eBay, V Interior or Vinterior, not sure how you say that. There's, we do a lot online now. So um, all the sort of stress of buying vintage furniture online has slightly been removed now I think because you can get so many photos and have a conversation and yeah and you talked a little bit previously about rugs and making them as big as possible in the room you make amazing bespoke rugs for your clients for your brand sister if people are kind of interested in getting something more more bespoke how do you start with this process um, it's actually quite straightforward. I think people find it a bit intimidating. For, for yeah. First of all, there are like 10, a dozen rug suppliers. You know, there are just hundreds and hundreds of people who can make you a bespoke rug. So it's just like, and they're all pretty much using the same uh, manufacturers and factories around the world. That's huge making in Morocco and in India and in South Africa as well, actually. But we use a guy called Hector of Shame Studios for most of our rugs or Christopher Farr. And it's just, you can do anything. You just think about it like a little artwork. You can design anything you want. Nothing is too crazy, I reckon, to go on a rug. You can draw something. You can make it more meaningful to yourself. You can just go with a plain color. But we do end up having our rugs made bespoke so often because weirdly rugs seem to be sold off the shelf in rectangles and we almost always want squares I don't know why what's happened there so that seems to be our number one reason for feeling the need to have something made yeah I'd not even thought about that actually that they are all rectangle aren't they but I suppose if you're in a Victorian house and you've got long rooms maybe that's just a, a standard size I think more traditionally rugs were a bit more like what I call a mat where it sort of sits just on in front of all of the seating so like the front legs of the sofa and the legs of the armchair are like on the rug but I prefer for the entire sofa and armchairs to be on the rug and then actually when you think about it that does extend to become more square so there's loads of different qualities and price points so you can kind of design your rug and then work with a rug manufacturer to decide whether you want hand knotted machine knotted whether you want wool whether you want bamboo silk there's a lot of different options to make it fit within your budget um, mm. and there are also places like in Morocco where it's a lot quicker to make a rug than it is in India so um, yeah you've got options and I always think it's just one of the things that you've just got to get right because it it throws a whole room off if the rug is too small in my view and I think a lot of people feel nervous of covering up loads of their floor that they might have like spent quite a lot of time and effort or money making nice a nice timber floor but I still feel like it's important to have the rug feel quite big just to make the room feel bigger yeah I mean for me I I feel like how would I get it cleaned if I had a massive rug like what do I do with it I can't put it in the washing machine no you can't you can have rug cleaning which involves someone turning up with like this giant hoover steaming machine I've had to do that thanks to my children a few times and, you know, it only takes an hour or something and it's just, 
I don't know, 100 quid and it's then it's all clean and beautiful as new again. It's amazing the stuff they can get out of it. But yeah, no, you definitely can't put it in the washing machine or usually. I once sent a rug to a dry cleaner and it came back in bits. So I think it's better to have it cleaned in situ with a machine. Right, okay, that's good to know. You've talked a lot about artwork and I think for people that follow you on Instagram and know about your work, it really, you you just have got such an amazing eye for beautiful pieces. For anyone that's on a bit more of a budget, can you suggest any places to source art for their living room? Yes, definitely. I think the big gallery gift shops are amazing, like the Tate or the Royal Academy are just brilliant. I Firstly, I, I love nothing more than a gallery gift shop, but um, you can get such great prints and then they often have a frame ready to go that you can buy with it. You know, some of my favourite prints I've got are ones I've bought at the end of an exhibition that I really loved. If you loved the exhibition, you'll always be reminded of it. And I think so often people are overwhelmed by thinking, I don't know what I like and I don't know what's valuable and I don't know where I should start. If you go to an exhibition and you love it and you're moved by it and at the end of it you think, I'm just going to buy this print, you won't regret it. And I think that's a good way to just start figuring out what it is that you like. Saatchi Art Online is an amazing resource. New Blood Art is also brilliant. Graduate shows. I recently went to the London Original Print Fair in Somerset House. That was really great. Got a few bits there. Um, posters, photographs. Photographers, you know, quite often I'll read a magazine um, and see an editorial series of, from a photographer that I love. Maybe it's of fashion or a lifestyle feature. And then if you look into that photographer, they quite often have their own personal work that they shoot for, for, you know, for their pleasure and they put it on their website. And then, then buying those prints are actually quite good value. So I do that a lot as well. We talked a bit about lighting the space and I know for you that's really important. How do you then light your space with an overhead light without it being too strong and too bright what would you use yeah overhead lights are just the worst I've got them everywhere here because in period properties that is so often you know the one dangling light bulb out the middle of the room and the ceiling is what you've got so you kind of have to put a light there my big thing is just diffused light so don't really want to see a light bulb so every light fitting I find I try to just find a fixture that is diffused so it's either got a diffuser underneath or the whole thing is more of like a big glowing shape I feel like you can't go wrong with just the the paper spheres the paper orbs you know on a budget that is the best thing that you could just put in your room and then we basically never switch them on or if you do try your best to get dimmer system so that you can put it on a low light setting and then I think it's so much nicer to just have the low level lighting around the room a floor lamp you know in a smallish living room you just need probably one table lamp one floor lamp and one little glowy blob on a shelf and some candles and that's the nicest light you're going to create of an evening and then hopefully during the daytime you don't really need anything on finally Sophie what are your absolute no-goes for living rooms in your opinion <laughs> tv above the fireplace is to be avoided so often fireplaces themselves, if you've got one, aren't in operation. So you've just got like a big void or a big empty fireplace. That's always quite tricky to dress. I think just like a plant is a good option. A few plants in pots just sitting on the floor in the fireplace is 
is good. I think anything to do with um, acorns in baskets is probably not a good idea. Um, or like faux logs or something like that. I just don't really like faking it, I guess. So just try and keep it simple and um, don't do anything that shouldn't really be there. I mean, like most people, I'm a bit allergic to the feature wall. That's probably not a good idea. No, they're good. Acorns in, in baskets in the fireplace and feature walls, I feel like they, they, they're good tips to live by for sure. <laughs> oh God, the placement, or should I say hiding of my TV is really causing me a bit of stress trying to hide this I don't know, thing that I use every single day behind a piece of art. Anyway, the lens we go to, hey, hopefully it's all worth it. Okay, so on to guest number two, Natasha Landers. Natasha started her Instagram page at Until Lemons Are Sweet to share her incredibly creative aesthetic. And I implore you to go and have a look. It's a house that's often booked out for photo and video shoots. And I think you will understand exactly why when you've seen it. Some of the ways that Natasha uses paint to make her living room feel bigger are so smart and something I'm definitely going to be asking her about. I want to talk to her about her tips on where she gets her inspiration to be so confident when trying something new and bold and how she renovated so creatively while maintaining the personality of a Victorian terrace, as well as her tips on taking old dated features and giving them a refresh. Here we go. Natasha, I love your house for anybody who hasn't seen it can you describe it and describe your interior ethos oh uh, hi laura and thank you thank you so much so i live in um, a three-bed victorian house my style is i know people use the word eclectic quite a lot but i would say it's it's very eclectic i love color so there's lots of bold color throughout the house um yellow is one of those colors which i didn't know until kind of like five years ago that I was really into yellow. So I have a yellow floor, rubber floor in my living room. So there are lots of blocks of color throughout the house. Um, I also love lots of different styles of furniture. I'm very into mid-century furniture, where that sits alongside things like an Ikea sofa. So I'm not precious. As long as I, I like it, then it's in the house. And the third thing is that I like to create things in my home that I can't buy anywhere else. In your living room, one of the things that I'm most drawn to is the flooring, but then this incredible use of art and painting that you have on the wall. So how would you describe your living room to, to the listeners? So my um, living room, actually my dad described it as like coming into an art installation, which was the biggest kind of compliment to me because I'm a create I collect art I collect black art anyway so for, for that space to be described in that way I think perfectly described the aesthetic for me so there's a lot of use of color in terms of color blocking on the walls and that was to create art in itself and interest on the walls but it's it's an, again eclectic mixture of mid-century furniture and paint um, very ornate coving um, and a velvet Ikea sofa. So lots of different things, but actually they work really well together. I, I'm very into detail and things complementing each other. Well, how, I mean, how did you put it all together? What was the, the process? We've had so many different start processes. So I've always really interested to, into kind of what was the, the beginning of the journey of the living room. It started quite a few years back, actually, for the last 
five years, I've been thinking about, I want to change the living room. What it used to, it was completely different. So from even the perspective of I had spotlights um, and I changed them back to the central lighting and added really ornate coving, which looks like it's always been there. So I, there were certain aspects that I wanted to return to its natural form. So having the coving, the architraving, all those sorts of things were quite important as a basis for that. And I wanted to explore and play with colour, but in a very different way. So often when people think of colour blocking, they often think of maybe you paint a chimney breast or in between the chimney breast. But I wanted to play with shapes and I used three different colours, so complementary colours. So yellows, greens, which always occur in, in a lot of my um, designs, but also um, bronze as well. So those were the kind of three colour palettes, which kind of are on a spectrum of the same sorts of colours anyway and worked really well. Um, and I wanted to play with colour blocking. So it wasn't just on the walls. You also see it on the doors um, and on the, um, the shutters as well. So I get lots of inspiration from all sorts of places. I use Pinterest quite a lot, but just staying in boutique hotels, standing at um, a, a tube station, and it may be just little aspects of things. So, you know, like having um, diagonal lines, you see a lot of that on tube stations. And my thing is not about recreating exactly what I see around me. It's using it as inspiration for mood boards. So... So yeah, I just, I wanted to experiment with colour, but have a basis of a soft white in the background so it wouldn't be too much in your face. I guess some people might think green and yellow, I, I wouldn't necessarily put those colours together. How did you feel confident enough to say, no, these are my colours, I love them and I know how I'm going to use them. Confidence is definitely a problem, I think, when it comes to strong paint. It is. And even though I am very confident about using those colours and I have um, you know, I, I, my bathroom is completely green. As I say, I, I have a yellow rubber floor. Um, there was a moment in time where I was anxious when I opened the tin of yellow paint and I thought, oh my gosh, this looks like, like the yellow lines that you use on roads. And because the room was completely refurbished, so it had completely new um, plastered walls, it just looked so fresh and with the white, wall I had a moment of anxiety about putting the colors together but actually greens and yellows go really well together and they did they they work really really well and once the decorator started putting them on and he reassured me I think it's going to look great it, it was fine so and I think my ethos is it's paint right and yes it, paint can be expensive it's not the most expensive thing in a room necessarily so if I didn't like it I could paint over it so that's kind of my ethos of, you know, don't be, don't be frightened of colour because the worst case scenario is that you have to paint it over. And it's quite interesting that you put all of those features back into the room. Was that important to find somebody who could really nail down that Victorian traditional um, cornicing? Because that is quite hard to find. It is. And I used a company called the Plaster, the East London Plaster Company, um, and I went to them, one, because it was local to me and I was really interested in giving uh, business to local people. And also he, he came really highly recommended. And when I first moved into this house, which was 22 years ago, the previous owners took out almost every single original feature 
that was there. It's the kind of house now that a developer would buy, not a first time, well, a second time buyer. But I had vision around it. So it was really important. Whilst, again, I'm not trying to be specifically Victorian in all of my style, I wanted to bring some of that architecture back in and marry that in with a kind of a modern way of looking at things. So, um, yeah, the, the cornicing is very, very ornate, but I've painted the cornicing and the ceiling in a, an, a bronze green color. So that brings that kind of modern aesthetic in with the kind of traditional. Um, and I also put in column radiators too, which I didn't have before. And again, I wanted that kind of aesthetic but the radiators are spray painted in bronze. So again, a more modern aesthetic to something that's quite traditional. For a radiator, when you're planning your room, your living room, did you put this underneath the bay window, you know, the Victorian window, or did you kind of put it on another wall? And how did you decide where to put it? I'm just thinking of the practicalities of, of the room. Okay, so for me, when I first moved into the house, I call it the house that Jack built, no offense to Jack, but it was built pretty badly or uh, redone pretty badly. It had no central heating at all. Oh my God. So in the whole house and in the living room, it had two single sockets. Now, what? even 22 years ago, two single sockets are not going to, to cope with any kind of modern devices. So I had the opportunity to decide where everything went. And in terms of the original radiators that I put in, which weren't the column ones, I was advised that the best place to have them, one is under the bay window. And that's something to do with it being open to the fresh air and, and being able to circulate better. And another on a wall where I wouldn't have the sofa, because obviously if you put radiators behind the sofa, then you're not getting the benefit of, of the heat coming through. So on a practical ba basis, I was advised by kind of heating engineers as to where, where the best place was to be. So when I put the column radiators in, they just went in exactly where they were before. I know lots of people who live in London have that not problem because it's a very good problem to have where you've got the kind of living room and dining room as kind of a disjointed space and the front you use because it's by the window, there's lots more light, it's kind of your telly room, but then the back, that whole dining room thing seems to us have gone from our way of living because it's not you've got to walk from the kitchen and sometimes you can't be bothered so how could you suggest incorporating that room into the living room this this room um would have been two separate receptions but when i moved in they'd already taken down the dividing wall so i think treat it as that there is some sort of continuity so that continuity might be in terms of how you decorate the space for me if it's open plan like mine, it's a through room, uh, where, where it would have been the dining room, where I've created those stripes and different color blocks, carry that through um, to the other side. Um, also, for me, the other side of the room was quite small. So again, if you have the ability to open up, um, I used paint to give a sense that both sides of the room were the same size. So in my living room, I have a yellow stripe and that yellow stripe goes across the ceiling, down one side of the wall and across the floor. So that was that was around aesthetics, but also it was to give the visual illusion that both sides of the room were the same size. 
So by having the stripe go at an angle, the side which would have been the dining area now looks exactly the same size as the, as the living space. So think about how you can use paint to create that kind of visual illusion or to marry two rooms um, together. That is such a good idea. And I don't think that people would necessarily think about that, but it's definitely a trickery of the eye that you can create quite inexpensively, which I love. How do you then implement all of the smaller, finer touches, the kind of the layering of the textiles and things like that? So I think I said before, I'm very into detail. So every aspect of that room is thought about. How I changed the skirting board, so it was completely gutted out. So the skirting boards had to be a particular height. So it gave more depth and more grandeur around that. So that the fixtures and fittings, so all the light switches and the sockets were a particular bronze color that was the same color as the radiator. So I'm really anal about de detail. So there was a lot of that. And all of that was part of a mood board anyway. And I knew that were certain furniture that I already had that I would be bringing back into the room. So I had quite a few mid-century pieces, sideboards, tables, those sorts of things. So they were coming back into the room. And I, I've got a really beautiful Donna Wilson rug, which I've had for years. Um, funny story about that. Um, for years, I couldn't find a rug for the living room because I'm very particular. And then I saw one on, I think it was loaf.com and it wasn't their sofa. It was just part of a, an ad and they, they didn't know where, they, where it was from. And I Googled zigzag um, rugs and I found the Donna Wilson rug. But I, I, I reckon it must have taken me about three to five years to find a rug I really liked. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm that particular. I would suggest to listeners, don't be as particular as me, but don't buy an in the meantime because it often costs more money. So I had bought rugs along the way and I knew even as I was buying them, they weren't quite what I wanted. So I'd say save up for something that you really want because it's not any more cost effective buying something cheaper in the meantime that you don't like and you end up upgrading. Yeah, true. So true. Also really eye-catching feature of your living room is those amazing shutters that you've got on the window. Now there's a bit of a story behind those as well, isn't there? Yeah, so I'm gonna say something which isn't very popular. I don't like the shutters that, and forgive me if you have them, the shutters that everybody has, I don't know what you call them. The, the, the kind of the, sla the slatted, the slatted white ones. wooden ones. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't have them, don't worry. Okay, <laughs> that's good. Um, but I think, there are three houses, three neighbors next to me that all have the same shutters, the same reproduction Victorian tiles, etc. And yeah, it just doesn't float my boat. But one of the things I would have loved for the house to have is the original Victorian shutters, but it didn't. So my inspiration when I spoke to my carpenter was to create something inspired by those shutters, but a more modern way of looking at it. And it was his suggestion to think about builders scaffolding planks. And I was like, cool, I'm open to anything because I, I upcycle all the time. So we went to this big um, place that sold all sorts of wood and loads of scaffolding. The thing about scaffolding is it's, it's cheap, but it's really good old pine. You know, it, it's lived a life. So he wanted to use it as the basis and sort of sand it all back. 
And I was like, no, no, no. I want to see the authenticity of it. I want to see where it originates from. So we created the scaffolding shutters out of a design that I had, loosely based on a Victorian shutter. But I asked him to keep some of the aspects of the shutters. So on the sides, it's got burnished in the, um, the name of the builder, um, sort of marked into it. And he was going to sand that off. And I was like, no, 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 I want that there. And then it had little metal bits, which were usually on the end of the scaffold to keep it, I suppose, to keep it neat and um, functional. And I asked him to pull those all off. And then I stuck them randomly around the shutters. So again, with the imprint of the builder's name on it, and they came in lots of different metal colors. So I just highlighted those more. So there's some greens, reds, um, not huge, but just little slivers of color on it. And then I used what you would usually see on a Victorian um, shutter in terms of um, the, the locks and things like that. So a nod to that in that way. And it's completely unique to me. No one else has anything quite like it. I love just not just the level of detail, but the level of imagination, because I think it is so easy to go online, buy the easy thing, just get it sent to the house and put up. But actually with a bit of thought and creativity and upcycling, you can really create something that is special. And that's also what I love about your IKEA sofa, because that is something that you decided to add your own personality to. Yeah. So the IKEA sofa, I'm trying to think, I think it's about 15 years old. And I liked it because it, it reminded me of a Corbusier sofa with the metal frame around it. Had it, it was perfect. It's worked really well. It's, it's kept maintained really well, but it didn't work with the new aesthetic. Um, and what I didn't want to do is to send another sofa to landfill or spend money buying a new sofa when I really liked how this sofa looked. So I worked with um, an upholsterer called um, Stool Upholsteries. And I had, I knew that I wanted to have in, in this, and I wanted velvet. I wanted velvet forever. I would say velvet is really difficult to keep clean. I always say to people, no, you can't drink on it. Red wine, oh, absolutely not. No, no, no biscuits on the sofa. So it's oh not, my God. and I've got a puppy. So I'm, I'm having to put stuff on the sofa. But besides that. It looks um, good. <laughs> it does look good. And it was updated not just by using velvet, olive green velvet, but also I asked the um, designer to, the upholsterer to put tufting in. So like you have on Chesterfields. So that created a bit of texture and a bit of difference. It looks nothing like it looked before. And whenever I put it on Instagram, people always ask, where did I get my sofa from? And I say it's an Ikea sofa, but... Well, it doesn't, didn't look like that. Oh, no. It's like when you read a magazine and you're like, I love that bracelet. It's stylish so. And you're like, no, I need to know where it's from. <laughs> For anybody who is about to embark in redesigning their living room, what tips and tricks have you got? And is there anywhere that we should be putting on our radar to find some interesting objects and furniture? Okay. So the first tip, and I think we've talked about this before, is think about how do you use your living room? Right. So it might be that where things are at the moment aren't the best way to re... To, you don't have to follow the pattern that was there before in terms of where you have your furniture. So really sit down and think about it. And also, I, I mean, this sounds really trite and designers say it all the time, right? but think about where does the light come in? You know, what, what has interest? 
Do you have any pieces that are special to you? That could be artwork um, or furniture that you want to incorporate. Um, and where would you want those to be? Because that could be a focal point in terms of things like art. Um, and places like IKEA are great in terms of inspiration of how you put together a room, particularly if you're not very sure. But I'd say be a bit brave. Take aspects of what you see um, on a shop floor and add difference to it. You don't have to recreate that exact layout that you've seen in a shop. So places that I buy a lot from, and I'd say think about investing in buying secondhand or vintage. Why? Because often you'll find a piece that nobody else will have really because it's, it's the very nature of it being vintage. And I find that they're really well made. But eBay is a really great place, for instance, to find it because you could go to someone like my table I got from a house sale where someone was clearing out their parents' house. And what I loved about it, it had a story attached to it. So she said they used to uh, play cards and, and put together jigsaws. When, and she was in her 50s. So I love the fact that the history, there's a history behind a piece of furniture that isn't brand new. So don't be afraid to explore things like eBay. Etsy's really great as well for you know independent sellers. And sometimes, again, they may be creators too. So they're creating a piece that is very limited in addition. So you get something very new. I'd say don't be frightened to mix different eras together. And also high street and high end. You don't have to stick to one particular thing. And certainly for my living room, I've got high end, high street, secondhand, vintage. Um, and it, for me, it all works. Um, and, and the final thing I'd say is do what you feel comfortable with. Don't necessarily follow what's on trend. Um, I, I follow a woman on um, Instagram and when I followed her, she was very Abigail Ahern in terms of her interiors, very, very dark interiors, very moody, beautiful. And then she said one day, do you know, I really don't like dark interiors at all. I'm very Scandi in my style. I'm like, you spent all this money putting together something that you thought aesthetically everybody would want to see on Instagram, but really wasn't your style. And she completely changed it around. So yes, we are influenced about what's on trend, but if it really isn't you, it's your home. Don't, don't do it. What a great final point to end on. If you've listened to our episode in season one that's all about choosing a colour scheme, you'll have heard all about how I designed a dark green reading room when I don't really like the colour dark green and I don't read. A tale as old as time, hey, don't fall into the trap of doing something impractical just because you like the look of it. A huge thanks again to Wix for sponsoring the podcast and remember to visit wix.co.uk for all your DIY needs. Thank you so much to Sophie and Natasha. Next week, I'll be exploring eco homes. They are most definitely ways that we can decrease our energy bills and increase our energy efficiency ratings, whether our home is new or old. So make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss it. For more interiors inspo, make sure you check out our Instagram page at SoHowDoYouPodcast and check out all of our other episodes as they tie in so nicely together. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Laura Jackson, and that's how you design your living room.